All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book, Fool's Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, so you guys, introducing Andrew Quilty. You might remember uh, he is an Australian journalist. He did the show, what, I don't know, half a year ago or something like that, a year ago, about CIA death squads killing innocent uh, people, including children, in Afghanistan. And um, he has stayed in, I hope you guys are following him on Twitter, he has stayed in Kabul after the regime change by the Taliban there of the last few months. And uh, also he has this new piece at The Intercept. So I just got to click the right button here. Uh, The CIA's Afghan proxies will get fresh start in the U.S. Oh, man. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing? Thanks for having me, Scott. Good to be back. Uh, Very happy to have you here. And I should say, by way of disclaimer, I think it is important to say, and I'm sorry because I don't want to get you in any trouble, but I don't think this should get you in any trouble. But your co-author on this story, Matthew Cole, one, I'll give credit to him and I quote him in my book because he's done great work on war crimes in Afghanistan in the past, particularly by SEAL Team 6 and uh, for The Intercept. And that's good stuff. On the other hand, he's the guy that got John Kiriakou locked in prison, and he's the guy that got Reality Winner locked in prison. And so there are people, and maybe another one too, I'm sorry, I forget. There are people who credibly suspect him of being some kind of rat, you know, not even really being a journalist, but being here to get other people in trouble. And so uh, that's worth bringing up. I mean, John Kiriakou went to the penitentiary because of him. So anyway, uh, great piece though. And I know that um, you must have been doing the lion's share of this work here from the position you're in there in Afghanistan. Um, but before we talk about the the uh, CIA death squads here, and there's so much, but I think people really want to know what is Kabul like now? What is Afghanistan like now in terms of just how totalitarian are these Taliban? Are they throwing women down the well and are they, you know going completely crazy with power and acting like ISIS or the Khmer Rouge or, you know, just how bad are the restrictions against um, women and girls going to school and having jobs and being out in public compared to before and all and, and journalists. I know you've been covering on Twitter the kidnapping and beating and persecuting of journalists. I don't know if maybe they've murdered some, too, I think you said. Um, so let us have it. Let us know what it's like there now, please, if you could, sir. Well, where to begin? Look, the the short answer is no, they're not the Khmer Rouge yet. Um, they have, however, started to, or the, I, I should say, their their actions are starting to veer away from the the words that they were um, uh, purporting to plan to rule by before they came into power and in the very early days that they gained power from the former Ashraf Ghani government. Um, they, they ran a very, very successful public relations campaign, which 
was partly uh, the reason why they were able to take the the country back from the American-backed Ashraf Ghani government so quickly. And uh, I should also add, with so little bloodshed, um, that's not to say there was there was. You no, mean in terms um, of promising amnesty? Exactly, exactly. They uh, they had this commission, the the commission for invitation and guidance, for a long time, but it had been more or less dormant for years, until very soon after the uh, Doha Agreement was signed between the uh, U.S. Uh, the, the Trump administration and the Taliban on uh, February twenty nine two thousand uh, February twenty nine twenty twenty. Um, the Taliban leadership really uh, got that got that commission up and running and um, dusted it off and uh, put it into full effect. And and from that from the very beginning, in fact, I remember reporting from the provinces early on um, following the Doha agreement and hearing from uh, low level Taliban commanders how effective. This um, this this strategy they had uh, to uh, try and uh, bring members of the Afghan National Security Forces over to their side. In, uh, actually, I, I I misspoke there. They didn't. They weren't intending to be, bring them across to their side. They were merely wanting them to desert from the uh, the government security forces. So they weren't taking them on. They were they weren't defectors as such. They were just uh, putting down their weapons uh, in exchange for a, uh, a letter that guaranteed their safety going forward. Um, and this uh, gathered momentum in the weeks and months before the, the final takeover. Um, and, it, you know, it, it's to a large extent what saw the, the government forces collapse so calamitously in, in the final weeks um, because so many of them just laid down their weapons and, um, you know, when they saw the writing on the wall, they realised they were not going to get the support they needed from the government and from the, the Ministry of Defence. And uh, they'd also run out of morale. Um, and they thought, you know, I think um, there, was a, uh, there was a sense that, you know, what, what is worth fighting for anymore? Well, why are we fighting for this government? And, you know, they, they were proven right in the end with um, Ashraf Ghani sort of skipping off on a helicopter um, without, in, without um, notifying anyone else um, outside his, his very um, immediate circle. So um, uh, all's to say is that there was some initial hope that uh, the, the types of people that one might have expected to be targeted uh, might... Uh, get through this transition period uh, without, in fact, being targeted. Um, that since the the takeover and since the the very early days of the takeover has started to uh, fall away a bit. Um, you've seen uh, you've seen isolated incidents where former members of the, the government security forces have been um, searched for and pulled out of homes. In some cases, they have uh, disappeared or turned up dead. Um, uh, there hasn't, however, been uh, any kind of systematic um, implementation of, of this policy. So it's, it's really hard to know whether these are lone wolves acting on, you know, uh, personal grievances or family grievances or, um, you know, uh, land disputes or tribal disputes and using the Taliban as, as mm -hmm. cover to take um, seek revenge. Well, you know, I saw um, a thing that said that 
I'm not sure exactly where this was. I, I think they said it was in the Ghazni province where, mm-hmm. you know, my understanding is the Hazaras are, you know, the dominant, you know, that's their area. And that a bunch of people essentially for being Hazaras, or at least, I don't know if it was, you know, like the Taliban was claiming a religious basis or just like a tribal basis, but that they were just kicking people out of their homes and occupying them. Um, there, there certainly has been some reports of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and look, these are in, uh, there was some possibly in Ghazni province, as you mentioned, also in Daikundi. They're all in central uh, Afghanistan where the Hazaras have their, um, where, they're, where they're mostly situated. Um, and they are still, however, minorities in most of these places. So they have a, um, a small uh, concentrations of their population living uh, basically in a, in a sea of uh, predominantly Pashtun areas. Um, and a lot of these places have had uh, histories of um, you know, contention over, over land. So, I, look, I haven't done any reporting on this, so I'm hesitant to comment, but I, I do expect that these, um, these uh, land grabs are kind of complicated and perhaps more than just Taliban persecuting uh, Hazaras uh, because they are Hazara. Um, mm-hmm. I wouldn't, however, rule out the fact that, um, uh, again, um, as I was saying, has been the, may have been the case with um, some of these reprisal killings, uh, individual reprisal killings, that they, uh, that the people doing these, um, pushing people out of their homes, may be um, using this new environment with the, the the Pashtun dominant Taliban now in power, um, and using them as as enforcers um, when in the past they haven't had that um, the ability to do that. Mm-hmm. But now overall, you're saying it feels like the PR campaign that hey. We're nice guys that that's over now that they've really, you know, finished seizing their monopoly on power that they're starting to get more heavy handed or are they still trying to? I mean, because the thing is, we talked about this, you know, all along. The war was to foist a coalition of approximately 20 percent minorities on the 40 percent plurality, which is never going to work. But now we're talking about a 40 percent plurality trying to lord it over essentially a majority that ain't them even if that majority is not all you know one united uh you know ethnicity and tribe you see what i mean so they've bitten off a lot right so in order to chew it i guess the question is are they just going to be absolutely ruthless and terrifying or are they really trying to broker deals and get along with hazaras and uzbeks and tajik chiefs that they need to be able to win over right yeah i mean it really looks like they're they're falling into the same trap that the uh, Americans and British fell into in the beginning by uh, siding with the, uh, the 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 Tajiks and the um, the other minorities that you mentioned uh, who made up the bulk of the Northern Alliance who the Americans had partnered with to overrun the Taliban in in two thousand one early two thousand two. Um, and it looks like the Taliban are making the same mistake. I mean, th- th- there was never any doubt that that was going to be the case, but it doesn't bode well for the future when you when you do not have an inclusive government. Um, and, uh, you know, look, there, there's, they've made very um, little attempt to um, uh, try and uh, portray this as, you know, anything other than what it is. I mean, there's, there's no getting around it. All, not only are they... Um, uh, 
by and large, uh, Pashtuns. They are uh, old guard Taliban. Um, and so there's, you know, there's, there's very few of these sort of young uh, reformers who have, you know, may have studied in the West and had a have a broader view on the world. These are these are very much the old guard Talibs who are running the show again. All right. And then, so what about women and girls? I know there's been, well, I guess I wouldn't say conflicting reports, but, you know, over time, the reports have changed about, well, first they closed some schools, then they reopened them, or they said that they did, but they didn't really reopen these, I guess that is conflicting reports. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, if if any issue was, um, was, was given... Um, uh, the most air, or more airtime than than others by the Taliban early on, and, and it was the, an issue that they were drawn on most of all by um, international actors and and uh, foreign and national media alike. It was the issue of women's rights and um, uh, and and one of the the real lightning rod issues uh, focal points there is obviously uh, the ability of girls to go to school. Um, all along, the Taliban had said they will. They, I mean, before they came to power, the Taliban said they will give women the rights that they uh, that the Quran gives them. Uh, they will give them the rights uh, insofar as Sharia law allows it. Um, when they came to power, um, all schools from the beginning were closed, um, and I think that was as much um, a measure taken by the schools themselves because of the uncertainty and the upheaval at the time. When schools went back, uh, b- both boys and girls in uh, grades one to six went back. Only boys from grade seven to 12 went back. So um, uh, to date, uh, countrywide, aside from three provinces in the north, which in the last week or so have sent girls from seven to 12 back to school, um, those that age group is not in school. Um Spokespeople for the Taliban, um, and you can uh, add as as big or small grain of salt as you want to this, are saying that the plan is for them to be allowed back and that they are just um, working out security arrangements um, to allow it to happen in a you know safe and orderly fashion. Um, you know, security arrangements in terms of sending girls back to school, I think um, what the Taliban are referring to here is um, uh, it's not security in terms of uh, are they going to get, uh, you know, blown up by a suicide bomber on their way to school. They're talking about um, more logistical things about how they are going to get to school uh, safely without, you know, crossing paths with um, any more uh, males than than they need to, and how are they going to be taught by teachers, uh, by female teachers? The um, the answer to that, or one answer to that is that they won't be because there are not enough female teachers to go around, um, and um, for that matter, there are probably not enough male teachers to um, teach all the all the male students. I mean, you essentially need twice the number of students to. Um, to teach classes that were once uh, mixed and are now split. Again, having said that, I should caveat caveat that by saying that some uh, some schools did uh, already segregate classes from seven to twelve. So, and then and then you have the uh, universities, um, which uh, bring in the same measures, um, uh, segregating classes, many of which already were segregated. 
Um, uh, but yeah, look, the, the, at the current moment, you've got the majority of girls in the country between uh, between ages uh, between grade seven and twelve are not in school at the moment. No. Yeah, and then so as far as the amnesty for former government employees and all that, they're really sticking with that. They're not rounding up these people and charging them with you know, whatever crimes and, and locking them all away? Well, they're not doing it on a systematic level from anything I can um, can understand, but it certainly looks like it's happening um, on a, on a small, uh, small scale on, and on an individual basis. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, they're doing it, whoever's doing it, they're doing it carefully. It's not, um, you know, there's not some kind of big purge that's going to put them on the, um, in the headlines. Um, it's happening piecemeal and it's, so it's not enough to make the headlines, but it is enough to uh, send shivers around, um, anyone who did used to work in the, the security forces. There's no doubt about it. And I've, I've met with a number of, um, these, uh, these guys, former commandos and so on, who are, who are renting, um, houses away from their, their former family homes where, um, it's assumed, uh, that it, it was known they, they lived, um, so they're, yeah, they're, they've gone to ground, they're hiding out, and many of them are hoping to get out of the country still after having missed that first evacuation. Mm-hmm. Hey, y'all check out our great stuff at libertarianinstitute.org slash books. First of all, we've published No Quarter, The Ravings of William Norman Grigg, our institute's late and great co-founder. He was the very best one of us. Our whole movement, I mean. And no quarter will leave his mark on you, no question. Which brings us to the works of our other co-founder, the legendary libertarian thinker and writer Sheldon Richman. We've published two collections of his great essays, Coming to Palestine and What Social Animals Owe to Each Other. Both are instant classics. I'm proud to say that Coming to Palestine is surely the definitive libertarian take on Israel's occupation of the Palestinians and Social Animals certainly ranks with the very best writings on libertarian ethics, economics, and everything else. You'll absolutely love it. Then there's me. I've written two books, Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've also published a collection of the transcripts of all of my interviews of the heroic Dr. Ron Paul, 29 of them, plus a speech by me about how much I love the guy. It's called the great Ron Paul. You can find all of these at libertarianinstitute.org slash books. And then I wonder about the average guy and his relationship with the police now and how different the Taliban, you know, local cops are to, for the regular people there compared to the previous era. Yeah, look, it's a good question. I mean, for, for one thing, the the new Taliban quote unquote police. Um, I don't believe they've had any training in policing, um, so it's very ad hoc. Um, some have uniforms, some don't. Um, one of the bizarre things to see is all these uh, Talibs walking around in in for, in the uniforms of the former national security forces, and and they're you know they're they're not. It's not as though the the new police are wearing the old police uniforms. They're you know that they're, they're these guys are just using whichever uniforms they they came upon um, in the takeover. So you've got, um, mm-hmm. you know, you'll see someone manning a, a security checkpoint wearing a, a beret of the Afghan National Army and the 
you know the the clothes of a of a policeman and or the or the former national director of security the the um intelligence agency so it's um it's all very ad hoc um i mean the the, the taliban were um relative i mean it was one of the things that the taliban were given some credit for by the populations that they controlled before they took control of the entire country, that being their application of justice. Um, it was in comparison to the, uh, the that which the uh, government presided over. It was um, swift and and it was uh, less prone to corruption. I'm not saying it wasn't prone to corruption, and I think um, that's a, a misnomer that the Taliban are not corrupt. I don't. I, I think it's probably hard to say that there's any uh, ruling government in the world that is not corrupt, and I don't think the Taliban are immune from that as pious as they may be. Mm. Um, but uh, this, although it's ad hoc, I think you know they do get things done um, in a in a less um, uh, Byzantine fashion than the than the old um, Byzantine and um, and riddled with with corruption um, than the old than the old government did. Mm -hmm. All right, now, so this is sort of a two-parter, if I can figure out how to put it together here. Uh, as I'm sure you're aware, when they came to power in 1994 through 1996, that they really got their start by murdering uh, child kidnappers and rapists. You know, started off down there, I think, in Spin Boldak, and then went on to Kandahar City and, and, you know, ended up taking the whole country. And at the time they walked into Kabul in 1996, which I don't know. Do you know offhand, even like a ballpark of what percentage of the population of Kabul is ethnic Pashtun back then or now, or if it's changed much? I Very don't small, know right? the proportion. I know that. Oh, look, I wouldn't say it's small. I would say it, it, it's it's probably slightly less than the national uh, um, average okay. across the board. But it's still, I, I would still, I would say it's still probably a plurality. Plurality. Okay. Excuse me. Well, and so in any case, when they walked into Kabul in 1996, they were greeted with flowers and candy like Dick Cheney predicted for us in Iraq, uh, because mm -hmm. just because Look, of how bad Massoud was, right? It wasn't that everybody was really happy to be taken over by a bunch of hillbillies from the South. It was just that, thank God they're getting rid of the last guy. And we saw a little bit of that yep. here, at least, when you they came bit, in. Yeah. So I just wonder, I guess what I'm curious about is whether they have a reputation among regular people that, well, at least these guys are law and order and just not blatant kleptocrats and kidnappers and, you know, the worst kind of warlords like America has propped up in power there for the last 20 years, in many cases anyway. I don't think they've entered Kabul this time with the open arms that they were last time. Um, first of all, when they came last time, they were an unknown quantity and the circumstances in Kabul had been... Uh, far, far, far worse than they were when the Taliban arrived this time. I mean, they'd been through, sure. um, you know, several years of civil war with um, indiscriminate shelling on a daily basis. I mean, it was hellish. And then they, and then there was the the warlordism and the you know checkpoints shaking people down and dragging women out of houses and cars and and raping and murdering. I mean, it was it was hellish. And it's you know the the Ashraf Ghani government and the. Uh, Karzai government before him are certainly far from perfect, but they did, you know, hold together um, a, some kind of um, functioning state in Kabul um, for the past 15 or more years. 
and a lot of people in Kabul did benefit in those years. And I think um, I would say the majority of people were were not um, welcoming the Taliban this time in the way that they did last time. Um, that's not to I, I think um, you know Afghanistan is a uh, is a broadly extremely conservative nation with a, a you know a conservative cultural basis and. Um, although there has been a lot of modernising the past twenty years, um, that it, it's hard to wipe that um, that cultural basis out. And so there are a lot of um, people, I would say, mostly men, um, mostly men, older generations who are, are happy to have this back, happy to have the Taliban back, and you know, running the show and um, uh, putting men back in the um, the seat of power. Um, you know, not only at the presidential palace, but in in the homes and on the streets. Um, you know, as we saw with the the election of President Trump in the U.S., it, it enabled a portion of the population to um, you know act out uh, the the kind of fantasies that had always been lying dormant in in years prior, because it was it was given some kind of legitimacy. And I think the same is happening here. In Kabul, where you have these these um, latent uh, feelings and ideology and, and culture that um, you know didn't disappear in the last twenty years and and will be readily brought back by a lot of people, not just uh, the Taliban themselves. Um, I mean, Kabul has had a very different experience in the last twenty years um, in comparison to the rural areas. And Kabul, there is no doubt, and Kabul citizens are the ones who benefited most. Um, so they are the ones who stand to lose the most in terms of the the rights that they won and the freedoms that they enjoyed in the past 20 years, whereas a lot of those freedoms didn't really come to the rural areas. Um, and certainly a lot of the benefits didn't come to the rural areas. So the, the, the change will be uh, hardest felt in Kabul, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. And just as a parenthesis here, I'm sure you know this anyway, but it's just the great new piece uh, from a, just a few weeks ago in The New Yorker called The Other Afghan Women by Anand Gopal, who, of course, is the author of the book No Good Men Among the Living, which is one of the very best books that was ever written about the Afghan war there. And boy, is that thing eye-opening. You got to read that thing through the end, everybody, seriously. But now, so yeah, more, you really do. One, yeah, that, just just to interrupt, yeah. I, I mean that that's exactly the kind of dynamic that I'm referring to there—the yeah. the urban versus rural dynamic, which um, Anand you know uh, pulls apart uh, yeah. incredibly well. And you know, what, as long as we're at it, right at the same time that that came out, um, there's a piece by uh, Jack Murphy in um, Concern Veterans. You can find it anyway. I interviewed him all about it, and it was. Uh, all about the drone war in Helmand and in Kandahar, mm -hmm. but I think particularly in Helmand in the Trump years. And he had mm -hmm. all his sources were from the drone warriors themselves. And they mm -hmm. had, were telling their side of the story of, man, they had us killing innocent people there so badly. And it's just the exact, you know, it's the same story as Anand Gopal is telling, but from the robot's point of view. And it's madness. And the way anybody with something that looks like it might be a walkie-talkie antenna zap and yeah. on anyway so this stuff's coming out more and more you know people are telling stories 
um, you know, kind of recapping and, and bad things are happening, but uh, have happened and, and those stories are being told. But now, so here's a question real quick before I get to your awesome story about these CIA death squad murderer guys who are soon to be my local sheriff's deputy uh, here in Williamson County. Um, I wonder about... Uh, I hate yourself, sir. Yeah, this, um, this uh, great expert journalist uh, think tank lady, I don't know exactly who she is, but uh, her name is Ashley Jackson, and I never could get her on her show, on my show. I don't know why, but uh, she had written this great study about three years ago, where she'd been all over the place, you know, north, south, east, and west, all over Afghanistan, and she said that after the CIA zapped um, the previous mullah, uh, who was it, Mansoor, Mullah Mansoor? I'm sorry, mm -hmm. uh, I haven't had enough coffee today. Once they zapped yep. him, and Hakanzada took over. Hakanzada is a lot smarter guy and that they decided that instead of just blowing everything up, they would just co-opt it all. And instead of waging such an ethnic chauvinist war that they would, you know, starting back then, that they would try to win over as many influential um, Tajiks and Uzbeks. I don't know, Hazaras, I think even, you know, at least making friends with some Hazaras, but bringing some Tajiks and Uzbeks actually into the Taliban and giving them official positions as leaders of the Taliban and this kind of thing in order to prepare the ground for what we saw happen in August, right? So I just yeah, wonder, like, August, whether any of that stuck, months. you know? Um, uh, well, I mean, I, I think the um, it, it's undeniable. The, I mean, it was it was the, the north of the country where you have most of these minorities, um, particularly the Uzbeks and the Tajiks, um, that that fell to the Taliban first um, uh, right. after yeah, uh, beginning in around May when um, um, when the uh, after, soon after Biden first announced the um, the revised withdrawal time of well first it was September 11 and then August 31 it was I mean these these provinces provinces that were uh, you know um, they were the the strongholds of, of Massoud and the Northern Alliance back in the day we're talking about like Badakhshan and um, Takhar and I mean these were the Northern Alliance strongholds and they were the first to go I mean it's incredible um, and and you saw um, Kandahar and, and Helmand the the former Taliban strongholds they were among the last to go and and the ones that were um, uh, fought over the most um, that that you know actually put up a fight um, whereas a lot of these a lot of the um, the provinces in the north you know fell over without a with, with few bullets fired um, so yeah, that's that's certainly um, uh, paid dividends in the end. I mean, they were ne they they were never going to, I guess, and and that was probably part of the reason that they they started in the north. So there there was um, uh, the 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 dregs of the Northern Alliance, and you know what became the uh, Northern Resistance Front, led by the um, Ahmed Shah Massoud's son. Um, weren't given time to rally their forces and um, you know uh, prepare a, a, a resistance of any um, uh, kind of efficacy and yeah and, and look where it's led. Yeah, brilliant strategy on their part. I think you know I was calling at the time. Ah, oh, see what they're doing. They're heading them off at the pass. Go ahead and seize Kunduz yeah. first, huh? These guys got their exactly. act together. You know they saw this thing coming, and I guess. Would it be fair to say from your point of view that when Biden kicked the can down the road from May to September, that they just didn't? They stayed on the same timeline of what they were going to do this summer anyway, whether the Americans 
had already pulled out or whether they were really just starting to and going to over the next couple of months. It was the same difference to them. And they just went on ahead. It looked that way. Yeah. I mean, look, they, I mean, they beat, they beat the Americans to Kabul. Like the Americans were still in Kabul when the Taliban arrived. I mean, it's insane. And it could have been, it could have been so much worse for the Americans getting out, you know, tens of thousands of uh, American citizens crammed in the airport. I mean, it could have been an absolute bloodbath if the Taliban had wanted it to be. Um, they, I mean, they're, I, 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 I don't want to be called the Taliban apologist, but they, their discipline um, around the airport when they had this mortal enemy of 20 years um, literally surrounded on all sides, um, yes, granted with a lot of firepower and a lot of air power overhead, but they could have made an absolute mess of that evacuation if they'd wanted to. Yeah, I mean, where the Americans are relying on them for security. Hey, do you know about this? Yeah, the Washington I, Post... I, the Washington Post, for what it's worth, I, you know, they may or may not be speaking for the CIA at any given time or whatever. I don't know what it is. But, uh, you know, they claimed that, in fact, maybe the Taliban were their source for this, you know, and said that, you know, we offered to the Americans that we'll stay out of Kabul. You guys keep responsibility mm-hmm. for the city of Kabul until you're done with your evacuation and then we'll come in then. And the Americans said, no, we already don't have enough men for that. So essentially, come on in. I mean, it was certainly the uh, arrangement the Taliban had wanted with the Afghan government. Um, and when it became clear on that day, August 15th, that um, while that had been negotiated, um, in reality, the the security forces and, you know, all the way up to the president, they were shedding their uniforms and um, hitting the road. And it got to the point where... Um, there was no one in control of the streets and um, looting began. And it was at that point that the, the Taliban were ordered into the city to take, to take control. So they actually, um, you know, again, I'm going to get called a Taliban apologist here, but they, they, um, they could have made this takeover a lot worse for everyone than they did. Even that, I mean, I, I have to say as a, re- a resident here, um, when I saw that, uh, all the police shedding their uniforms and abandoning their posts. I thought, look, the best thing that can happen now is that the Taliban comes in before this becomes, you know, like a, a, a lawless zone for um, until they do. And and they did. They they were very reactive. They um, they saw what was happening and they they came in. And it, you know, it wasn't perfect in the beginning by any means. And and the, they um, admit as much. But um, look, I just I can't get over how much. Um, uh, how smoothly this transition of power went in comparison Listen, I mean, to, to be I mean, perfectly look, clear here, your country, Andrew, I mean, th- there's nothing that you said that is an apology for them there to say that somebody is not Pol Pot. is not to say that they're a perfect gentleman to say that they're wise not, enough no, to be, you know, works, that they're, it? yeah, to say that they're clever enough to play it cool instead of going completely berserk is, you know, I don't know. That's like just mm. describing the color of the sky, man. That's that's not praise. You know, that's just saying it is what it is. And, no. and yes, you're absolutely. And there's just no question about it, right? Who could argue that this looked just like when ISIS rolled into Western Iraq? It just didn't. Exactly. Thank God it didn't. You know, but it didn't. And and as we've exactly. always said, as everybody who knows anything about this thing has always said, that the Taliban are not Al Qaeda. They're conservatives, not radicals. And there's a big difference there in this case, you know? But anyway, 
Um, mm. Speaking of radicals, yeah, I mean, let's talk about radicals amongst them. Yeah. Listen, I'm sure the next time I have to get a driver's license test, the guy giving it to me and deciding whether I'm allowed to drive a car in my own town where I was born and raised is going to be a former member of a CIA death squad. Is that right? <laughs> Down to the not. DMV. That's who decides. Because this is how people assimilate in America when America uses people for to run their death squads in foreign countries and then they have to hightail it out of there. How they assimilate is they get government jobs. Which means mm -hmm. they become overlords of everybody who's actually from here. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so well. the next time I get pulled over, it's going to be by a member of uh, what are they calling them now? Zero units? Is that the same thing as a counterterrorism pursuit team, or that's a different distinction yeah, of CIA no, no, squad? Same thing. Same thing. Okay. And these zero teams, you've done the show about you know uh, one time before about these death squads killing kids in their. Um, in their uh, school barracks, essentially, um, mm -hmm. and all of this. And hell, the CIA death squads are, and their war crimes are legendary in this war, so we don't have to redo all of that. But that's why they call them death squads. I think people get it. So, but then your story, it's unbelievable that the CIA, they put all these guys on planes and brought them straight here. They didn't try to get them a place to live, like a little village somewhere in Uzbekistan or something. They brought them to the United States of America? Yeah, I mean, look, I, there's, there's actually been a, a lot of um, praise, as we you know, mentioned in the article, for, for the way the CIA um, dealt with their uh, you know, proxies or, or partners, as they would refer to them. Um, and, you know, I suppose as far as, as uh, loyalty goes, that they have. Um, and that um, has not been the case um, with a, a lot of the other uh, Afghan units that were not um, sort of run by the CIA and, and funded and trained by the CIA. CIA and, um, you know, with the relationships that those that organisation built up with their proxies over the years, um, there were a lot more um, or a lot less shadowy um, uh, units, under, special units under the Afghan National Army that um, have felt, you know, very much abandoned. And I, I've spoken to a number of um, American, you know, former uh, uh, American veteran, Afghanistan veterans who are, you know, really angry about the way that, um, you know, their former partners here have been treated and and left behind um, where, when in comparison to the, the CIA, you know, they, they really got, um, you know, they rolled out the red carpet for them. Look here, you and I both know that what you need is some Libertarian Institute things. Like shirts and sweatshirts and mugs and stickers to put on the back of your truck. And to give to your friends too that say Libertarian Institute on them. So that everyone will know the origins of your oppositional defiant disorder and where they can listen to all the best podcasts. So here's what you do. Go to LibertasBella.com and look at all the great Libertarian Institute stuff they've got going there. Find the ad in the right hand margin at LibertarianInstitute.org. LibertasBella.com. You guys check it out. This is so cool. The great Mike Swanson's new book is finally out. He's been working on this thing for years. And I admit I haven't read it yet. I'm going to get to it as soon as I can. But I know you guys are going to want to beat me to it. It's called Why the Vietnam War? Nuclear Bombs and Nation Building in Southeast Asia, 1945 through 61. And as he explains on the back here, all of our popular culture and our retellings and our history and our movies are all about the height of the American war there in, say, 1964 through 1974. But 
How do we get there? Why is this all Harry Truman's fault? Find out in Why the Vietnam War by the great Mike Swanson. Available now. Yeah. All right. So, actually, you know what? I'm sorry, man. Let me go back one step. When they're, uh, the Taliban are providing security at the airport, their counterparts are the CIA counterterrorism pursuit teams, these zero units. They're also there providing security at the airports. They're on the American side, obviously there, but they're sort of working together to vet everyone. But then there's a story, I'm sure you heard about this, at least from reading, you know, watching the BBC on Twitter, uh, at the very least, you must be familiar with the accusation that after the suicide attack, that somebody on the wall and some said the CIA death squads, their mercenaries, opened fire on the crowd. And one doctor described a bunch of people had, you know, downward sloping gunshot wounds to their upper chest area and their heads and this kind of thing. And so I wonder if you know anything more about that. If you ever heard anyone confirm that and say that, yes, I saw that happen. That because, you know, originally they even said it was two suicide bombs because 175 killed. That's a lot. Thank and you. then they said, oh, no, what it was was after a suicide bomb. Then the bad guys also broke out in machine gun fire. But then there were no bad guys Thank with you. machine guns to point at. So then the question was, like, was it the good guys with machine gun fire? Yeah, look, um, it, the jury's definitely still out. It, it's it's bizarre, actually, how little um, reporting's been done on this. And um, I think it just – there was so much going on at the time that um, – and and all the uh, news agencies here, I mean myself included, were were so um, um, overwhelmed with what was going on. Um, but yeah, it's it's um, there's definitely a, a gap in the reporting there. Um, uh, my understanding is that the uh, zero units were not anywhere near this particular gate at the time. Um, that they were um, controlled by uh, conventional forces from um, the U.S. and, and other coalition uh, countries. Um, and look, the the anecdotal evidence would certainly suggest that there were at least some people who were killed by um, uh, coalition forces. Yes, mm. and and that may have been these same guys. Um, no, I don't think it was. I don't think the these zero units were anywhere near that that gate. Oh, okay. um, they were on, as far as I know, they were on a, a diagonally opposite gate, you know, um, a couple of miles away. I'm sorry, I get you. Yep. Hey. And you know what? I heard you say that, but then I got an email and it broke my brain apparently. And I forgot that you said that. Uh, Okay. So, um, all right. Well, hopefully we'll get some more journalism on that aspect right there. I mean, that's an important story in itself. Um, But now, so uh, could you tell me, where did you get the number um, 7,000 from? Did they admit that? They said, yeah, we Uh, brought 7,000 CIA guys, you know, assets. That, that, that was uh, that was Matthew Cole's reporting. Okay. So I don't know where you got that. Um, all right, and then. But it doesn't surprise me at all. From um, I mean, what I, what I saw again anecdotally, um, I, I spent a bit of time over near that gate, and there were you know there were there were you know hundreds if not thousands of people um, queued up outside that gate um, many of whom looked to be in a um, in a in a posture that suggested they that they were actually going to end up inside the airport and a number of them were that I spoke to um, on one day 
were from uh, Khost province, which is uh, home, of course, of the Khost uh, Protection Force, which is is one of these counterterrorism pursuit teams um, with that doesn't fall under the same um, designation as the the zero units, but is is akin to the akin to them. Mm. And then he also just links to the Post and the Hill in their reporting that, as the mm-hmm. Post puts it, there were twenty thousand Afghan quote unquote partners. And their relatives brought here, which he uh, points out would be a third of the 60,000 Afghans that they've taken in overall. So two thirds of them, I guess, would just be random civilians, they're saying. Mm. But Mm. uh, yeah, man. Now, did you guys get much reaction from this article that, hey, this is alarming because we don't want Afghan death squad CIA guys to be our deputy sheriffs, you know? Um, look, it won't surprise you that the um, most of the uh, attention it did get was from you know, people like yourselves, people like yourself, who is on the lookout for it, um, and not from the people who um, who you know <laughs> who like to um, view the the work the uh, the, the American government does as as noble and um, infallible. Yeah. In um, fact, you're really which, kind of raining all over the parade of their one little silver lining in their absolute catastrophic failure here, which is that at least yeah, we were able to rescue all of these poor, helpless civilians and get them to safety. And now you're saying, nope, yeah. you don't even get that. And they don't want to hear that. Yeah. I mean, every major newspaper um, and network that, as far as I've seen, has been reporting these, you know, very laudatory um, uh, stories about the, you know, saving children from the clutches of death and, and you know, barely mentioning um, the, the history of these units. And, and you know, certainly, um, uh, I, I guess it's certainly something that the CIA is not going to want to um, broadcast too much. And, it, you know, I get the feeling that some of these, um, some of the stories that have come out have been, um, you know, uh, pushed along by the agency. They certainly, some of them certainly have that flavor. Yeah. And look, I'm not nativist here. I mean, grab the average Afghan and put him in an American County. He'll be just fine. I'm not saying that. Mm-hmm. I'm only saying guys who are members of CIA death squads, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I got a problem with that warlords and kleptocrats and murderers. And, and there are some people America's worked with in Afghanistan with some very bad reputations for very good reason. And to think that they get to just come and all of a sudden become American naturalized citizens and everything's just fine. And, you know, uh, in no time at all, just essentially for public relations purposes at our expense is pretty outrageous, you know? Yeah. I mean, look, they, they were on the, they were on the right team, weren't they? They, they, um, they threw in their lot with the right side and, um, and, I mean, um, uh, for once, you know, in one of the very rare occasions you've seen the um, the, the losers in the war, um, at least a small portion of them, um, come out um, better off as a result. Yeah. By the way, this is just a parenthesis. It's just a coincidence, but it's a new thing I learned today. I like learning new things. The Taliban has a group that they call the Bada Brigade. Which, mm-hmm. <laughs> no relation to the Iranian-backed group and the George W. Bush-backed group that rules Iraq now. Uh, entirely separate group. 
but named after the Battle of Badr, uh, surely as they are. So that's just a fun little fun, yeah, I guess for me. Yeah, it's pretty, yeah. All right. Yeah, well, these guys are def- pretty visible in around Kabul. They're um and and um they're all uh, from the the Haqqani side of the the Taliban. So they they've certainly got a bit of a reputation behind them as well. I bet they do. Then yeah, god dang. Um, all right. Well, there's another tangent there from Anand Gopal's reporting about how uh, the CIA hired Haqqani to be on a counterterrorism pursuit team for a little while there when he was begging to come in from the cold earlier in the war. But then the military kidnapped and tortured his brother at Bagram and the CIA kicked him out. Or maybe they grabbed him. I think the military grabbed him and then the CIA didn't stick up for him. The CIA let the military have him and abuse him and then finally let him go and then made an enemy out of him at that point where he'd been begging to come in from the cold right then. And they could have, as bad as he is, he could have been on their side this whole time instead of their deadly enemy this whole time. And now here he is sitting right well, in the catbird seat big... anyway. For God's yeah. sake. Well, at least, well, you, at least son, you won't run son. into him at the, uh, at the ice cream shop. I'm sorry? At least, um, at least you won't run into him, you know, down the the gas station, um, along with the the zero one guys. Yeah, exactly. All right, and now I'm sorry. One last question I wanted to ask you about uh, Afghan society nowadays. I know this is already a desperately poor country, but I, it occurs to me that there must be some kind of massive economic crash and recession now with this massive flow of foreign money now halted, right? And so. There's got to be market corrections of every description going on right now. And I wonder just how bad of a crisis people are feeling there. They're already so poor it doesn't make a damn difference or what? Yeah, it's it's definitely being felt um, on many of the main streets in Kabul now. You see, um, you know, dozens if not hundreds hundreds of makeshift stalls being set up um, where people are selling their household goods, not only to not only so they can afford to try and get out of the country, but, um, you know, some tell me that they're, they're doing it just so they can feed themselves, feed their families, because, um, yeah, as you say, there's the, the uh, 75% uh, of the um, Afghan budget in the, with the former government was foreign-funded, that has now been um, seized, and um, and sorry, when I say seized, I I mean um, uh, stifled, as you say, not um, not taken. But um, um, so you've got yeah. Look, there's there's no not only is um, salaries not being paid um, to civil servants, um, the 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 cash that used to be delivered physical cash that used to be delivered on a weekly or monthly basis to uh, into Afghanistan from the US has stopped. So you've got um, a situation where the banks have a major cash shortage and they are only allowing uh, account holders to withdraw a maximum of $200 per week. Um, and on top of that, you have, you know, all this divestment um, uh, across the country where, um, you know, although it had been declining um, for the last five or six years after the the majority of um, international forces departed um you've you've also had a lot of um, international uh, aid um, organizations uh, leave in recent months um, businesses are uh, getting their money or already did get their money out of the country 
Um, no one is hiring anymore. People are laying off staff. So, um, and 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 the the as I said, the civil servants of the country, um, and and there are you know hundreds of thousands of them in Kabul. Uh, I mean, not only have they not been paid since the Taliban came came to power, but the lower level ones amongst them. I'm talking about the the traffic police and the I mean the former police who are you know not really um, very few of whom are in their jobs anymore. Um, but the street sweepers and the municipal workers, that, that they had not been paid for two months um, uh, from the um, from the start of the Taliban regime. So they're, they're, they're now into their fourth month without a paycheck. Um, so yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty desperate. And um, coming into winter, we're looking at um, Kabul being entirely without power because um, the majority of electricity is imported from the former Soviet republics to the north. And um, uh, like the civil servants, those electricity bills have not been paid in the last two months. And um, uh, Kabul suffers from massive electricity uh, shortfalls in the winter anyway. In this, um, in this case, it's going to be pretty dire, I suspect. Yeah. And then are you keeping your eye on this whole ISIS and ETIM? See, I'm afraid that... The, uh, you know, ISIS was sort of kind of, ISIS in Afghanistan was sort of kind of groomed by the NDS and the CIA in the first place back, you know, in the early 2010s before they hoisted the black flag and declared loyalty to ISIS and all that. But it seems like if you rewind further, uh, the Americans have had a relationship with the Uyghurs in the past to use against China back in the Bill Clinton era, for example. And, um, course there's all the hype about china and all the hype about the uyghurs now and i'm not sure if you know this it's a obscure little detail that the u.s bombed an etim that's the uh, east turkestan islamic movement bombed a training camp of theirs that was you know hosted by the taliban up in what do you call that little weird corridor that sticks off the very the, uh, the Wuhan corridor. Yeah, exactly. So it's way up there in that weird little uh, thingy that borders China, and the Americans bombed it. But then Pompeo took them off the terrorist list in 2020, and you would think they just leave them on that and break the law. I mean, what the hell? It's covert action, right? Why would they even do that? But it seemed like such yeah. an obvious signal that you know when when uh, Muslim terrorists. Ooh, Islamist terrorists are pointed east toward China. Maybe they ain't so bad after all again. And it seems like, you know, I don't know. There's like two choices, right? Is the CIA going to try to work with the Taliban to kill these guys? Or is the CIA going to try to back them and turn them east? And I just wonder, and you can call me a kook if you want to. I don't mind, dude. I don't have feelings. So just tell me what you think of all those crazy things I just said. Look, I, I, the um, ETIM is um, is a, a little bit out of my um, zone of <laughs> my my limited zone of knowledge. Um, but look, I mean, if, speaking geographically, the 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 border that Afghanistan shares with China is, I think it's about, I think it's twenty miles or fifty miles or something, and right. it is through. The, the most inhospitable terrain. I mean, you certainly can't drive a vehicle through there to say that um, a lot of the, the, um, 
the, the, the routes that the, the Taliban have used over the over the years into into the tribal areas in Pakistan are possible by by vehicle. But I think um, I think geography will will um, uh, curtail um, the possibilities there to to a certain extent. Um, you did see the, there was a there was a, a, a really um, horrific. Uh, suicide bombing in a Shia mosque in the northern city of Kunduz um, over the weekend, and uh, the Islamist, Islamic State Khorasan province claimed that the guy who carried it out uh, was a Uyghur. So, look, they're, they're certainly um, uh, they're not um, they're, they're playing all these all this politics, um, you know, to their uh, to their own benefit, and, mm-hmm. um, you know. Throwing a throwing fuel on the fire for sure. Um, uh, as as far as uh, what the CIA um, plans to do with them, I, I'm I'm I, yeah. As I say, I'm not um, <laughs> not really qualified to say. I'm afraid. Well, you keep your eye pointed that direction anyway. Uh, one <laughs> one thing I could have added there was one year ago, the Post had it that JSOC was helping the Taliban kill ISIS guys. That was their priority, their mm-hmm. own little kind of mini awakening movement there. Something we can work with the Taliban on is getting rid of these mm-hmm. guys who actually are dangerous to, you know, American and Western interests in a way that the Taliban really mm-hmm. just aren't and never were. And so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, they definitely, uh, I mean, the Taliban always denied that. Um, but uh, Wesley Morgan, the guy who reported it, is a, um, is a, a, an excellent journalist, and especially in that part of the, the country. Um, and look, they, there are some shared interests there. So, um, you know, yeah. who, um, you know, we, we've seen the zero one guys being resettled into American suburbs, you know, <laughs> uh, what, how, what we'd be fools to, um, write off, uh, us supporting the Taliban to eradicate ISIS. You got that right. Um, yeah. Or, you know what, I think even align with ISIS and ETIM to do something else, you know, I don't think. Well, there's really nothing you could put past the CIA that they don't think is a good idea, no matter how bad of an idea it is, that they'll just do it. You you come across some crazy thing, you're like, man, I can't believe it's that way. And then you find out the CIA was behind it. And you go, okay, I guess that makes sense, kind of, you know? Of course, ISIS-K used to be backed by the CIA. How could they not have been, right, at the end of the day? Come on. All right. Anyway, I'll let you off the hook. Thank you so much for your great work and for your bravery staying in Kabul. You wouldn't catch me alive or dead there, buddy. So you be careful out there, and I hope we'll talk soon. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, man. All the best. All right, you guys. That's Andrew Quilty. He's reporting from Kabul, and he's writing at the Intercept. Hey, there's a reason to look at the Intercept. This one is with Matthew Cole, but it's good and important, and it's called The CIA's Afghan Proxies, Accused of War Crimes. We'll get a fresh start in the U.S. Man. (laughs) The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. APSradio.com, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.